Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travellers. It's always lovely to have you with me. Trudy and I were talking about it just this morning, in fact, because Trudy hears me saying to camera things like the past couple of years. But of course, it's 2024 now. And all of this kicked off in 2019, 2020. It's four years now. Um, and over that period of time, I've got to know you, the fellow time travellers, a bit. And you've got to know me. So we've been travelling through space and time together for a considerable chunk of time and I've been affected and changed by it all. And I suspect many of you feel affected and changed too. Well, it's a shared experience. We've got it in common. Always a big thank you to everyone who has uh, already joined my Patreon site. That's the financial support that lets Paul and I get on with the work and lets us uh, keep this podcast series going, keeps the wheels on the bus, so to speak. Uh, so if you're already there and making that contribution, a huge thank you. What more can I say but thank you? And I'll always continue to repeat that message of thanks. If you're not a Patreon member yet, but you'd like to join, it's easy. Go to patreon.com, look for me by name, um, and follow the instructions you you pay a small subscription fee you can pay by the month or you can pay for a year all together and it is cheaper if you pay for the whole year uh, up front but I'm not trying to put anyone's arm up anyone's back <laughs> I would just like you to be a member come along sign up join the family and you know, as well as as well as supporting the podcasts you get access to exclusive content that's a fact. Question and answers and competitions and weekly rants and all of the rest of it. I'll hope to see you there. Okay, it's now time to strap into the time machine as we hurtle off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. It's 1918 and the world is exhausted by war. As one of the horsemen of the apocalypse leaves, another rides onto the stage. Plague and pestilence strike. Around a third of the world's population is infected. Estimates of death tolls climb from 20 to 100 million. It's said to have been the deadliest pandemic of all time. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In the last episode, it was 1917, when we travelled with you in the so-called sealed train as it sped Lenin through Europe towards his destiny. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Hello, lots of love to the fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we watched as Lenin arrived back in Russia. 
fired up the revolution and shifted the world on its axis. This week, the date is the 11th of March 1918 and we're in an army camp in Kansas in the United States of America as Sergeant Albert Gitchell goes down with what he initially describes as a bad cold, God love him. We're with patient zero, perhaps, as a disease that will go on to kill millions of people takes its deadly grip on the world. We are... We're all around the world with this one, really. Uh, It's a global pandemic. Uh, And I'm I'm not talking in this instance about COVID-19, the so-called pandemic, although I have severe doubts, but a pandemic about which I also have doubts, <laughs> in 1918-1920, just at the end of the First World War, and it's the one that everyone's heard of being described as Spanish flu. Maybe the Spanish flu epidemic is slipping from memory now. It's more than 100 years ago now, so it might be drifting away, but nonetheless, it was it was quite the to-do. I mean, if I was to talk about uh, face coverings, um, funerals limited to 15 minutes and limited, you know, numbers of people. If I was to talk about, you know, restriction on moving between towns, in fact, the inability to use public transport without official certificates and permissions. If I was to talk about hefty fines for people breaking the rules, talk of, you know, scientists being given the whip hand and being in the ascendant and governments listening to them for all sorts of advice, talk of vaccines. People now, would you'd automatically think I was talking about COVID-19, but no, all of that uh, and more besides was in place because of the fear and the frenzy around the so-called Spanish flu pandemic. In 1918, and it started during the last year of the war, you know, the the fighting was still going on. And certainly the populations of Europe, but other places in the world were worn out by four years of of debilitating war, the like of which no one had ever seen or experienced. And it's certainly gone down in lore that the pandemic that then came in and afflicted this already weakened global population, that it killed more people than the worst of the 14th century outbreaks of the Black Death. Obviously because there were more people alive in 1918 than in the 14th century, but nonetheless the death toll, the naked number, was greater for the Spanish flu pandemic than for the Black Death. And everyone tends to think that you know there's never been anything more deadly than the Black Death. How did it kick off? Well, there's always a lot of speculation when something like this happens about patient zero. People try to work out exactly where and when and who started it. Who was the first person to get this? Who were they and where were they? Well, around breakfast time on the 11th of March 1918, an American soldier, Sergeant Albert Gitchell, he was a cook, he was a camp cook at Camp Funston in Kansas, And uh, he reported to the hospital block of his camp with what he described as a bad cold. The record shows that he had a headache, he had a sore throat, his muscles were achy all over, and he had a high fever. So he, you know, he did what he was supposed to do. He turned up at at the hospital block looking for, you know, help, treatment. People took one look at him and thought, oh yeah, you need, you know, you need some care. But he was no sooner 
tucked up in his hospital bed than Corporal Lee Drake arrived at the hospital block with exactly the same symptoms. And then right after that, Sergeant uh, Adolf Hurley, he comes wandering into the hospital block feeling like death warmed up. There's a ward set aside in the hospital block for people with contagious conditions or what look like might be contagious conditions. So the three of them are in there. And there's obviously many books have been written about all of this. And one of them is called The Great Epidemic by an American author called A.A. Holding. And he describes in the text how uh, a surgeon Colonel Schreiner found himself all of a sudden, you know, out of a clear blue sky, found himself dealing with a flood of sick people. To quote from it, by breakfast time, the telltale medical manifestations were as obvious to Colonel Schreiner as the inscriptions in a family Bible. Everyone was coming in just with exactly the same ailment. And by lunchtime, now remember, this started at breakfast time. By lunchtime, 107 men were struggling in that hospital block with the same symptoms. Fever of 104 degrees, low pulse, drowsiness and photophobia. You know, so people you know, struggling with bright light. Conjunctivi reddened and mucous membranes of nose, throat and bronchi, evidence of inflammation. It's obviously medical terminology there, but we can all recognise those symptoms. You know, runny nose, sore throat, redness around the eyes, headache, you know, a miserable set of symptoms. And as I said earlier, historians now and other specialists dispute the idea that Albert Gitchell, poor old Albert Gitchell, was patient zero. I mean, in reality, there's almost no such thing because other patients... It became apparent later on that other patients in other camps in Kansas and, you know, as far away as New York City, people were, were, you know, looking for medical help for these, you know, these fairly tip. I mean, let's face it, they're not rare symptoms. They're the sort of symptoms that everybody recognises from respiratory, fluey, cold-type, coronavirus-type in- infections. However, as I said, it was a very different world. 1918, not least because there was a a world war on and information was being controlled in terms of how it would play to people's morale. It was all about maintaining morale. So bad news would would be uh, suppressed and good news would be whipped into existence and then spread far and wide. And so a decision was taken that, oh God, this is the last thing after four years of war, we can't have the, the, the home front panicking about illness on the home front. And so it was suppressed. The newspapers didn't report it, basically, and radio didn't report it. Spain, however, was a neutral country. Spain wasn't in the First World War. It kept out of it. And so the media there, newspapers, radio, whatever, they were free to talk about what was happening, because people were falling ill in Spain with the same symptoms as people were falling ill everywhere else. And so the first reporting that people in Britain or France or North America got was that people in Spain were getting ill with a 
with a mystery illness or there was a, an epidemic sweeping the country. And the fact that Spain was the only country talking about it meant that it went down then as Spanish flu. That's why it was called Spanish flu. Everybody had it, but the only place that was admitting to having it was Spain. So it became known as Spanish flu. The reality of the situation was that because of the nature of a global conflict, millions of people, well, mostly men for obvious reasons, but millions of people were on the move, coming from wherever they had started out and pitching up wherever they wanted to be or needed to be or wherever they were sent. And because of that, it's impossible now to say where this epidemic of illness started. It began in the spring, or people were reporting it, first of all, in the spring, and but there were symptoms, as the year came on, there were symptoms for people in Africa, people all over Asia, all over North America, throughout Europe, in the South Pacific Islands. India was very badly hit, to the extent that if there were 50 deaths for every 1,000 people. And that's very, very severe. That's a, that is a serious death toll. As with COVID-19, a lot of fingers pointed at China as the source. A lot of people speculated that whatever it was, it had come out of China. Whatever it was and wherever it came from, it had sidestepped the natural immunity of most people. We've all got immunity built up from childhood, to, especially to things like respiratory uh, diseases because they're, they're common, the common cold. And, uh, you know, if you reach adulthood, you've you've built up an immunity to most of this stuff. H however, whatever this particular version of a respiratory flu-like illness was, it kind of blindsided most people or many people's immune systems. Then panic started to set in and, and and there were there were stories of people falling ill in the morning, being fine and well, went to bed, woke up in the morning with the symptoms and being dead by nightfall. That is not anything that we recognise from the flu. It's not anything that we recognise from any of these kind of illnesses. You know, people, you know, get iller and weaker and iller and weaker and, you know, they either get better or after, a, you know, after several days, let's say, or a, or a period of time, they succumb to their symptoms. There's another odd thing about the Spanish, in inverted commas, Spanish flu, pandemic, epidemic, which was a complication called cyanosis, which is a depletion of oxygen in the blood. So people effectively suffocated because it, there wasn't enough oxygen getting into their blood and circulating. And there were also reports of people, as they were dying, bleeding at the mouth and at the nose, you know, bloody froth coming. And this is, after a hundred years, uh, you know, the, the picture, the picture starts to come into a different focus. And I mean, for example, we know much more about aspirin than, than people did in 1918, because in 1918, it was, it was a new drug. It's a wonder drug, obviously. Aspirin's a fantastic thing. But there was negligible understanding about the appropriate dosage Right? So it was cheap, it was readily available, and people, because they were so afraid of if they had symptoms at all, people were literally, they were being given by medics and taking handfuls of aspirin, right? literally. And people were taking, you know, like you know, 20, 30 pills and just crunching down on them. 
in that mistaken belief, you think, well, if two aspirin might make me feel a bit better, 50 will make me feel splendid. So there may well have been global overdosing on aspirin. The symptoms of aspirin overdose to the point of death include cyanosis and and blood and blueing of lips and all of it. These these things were bolted on. These symptoms of 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 people suffocating, oxygen depletion, blood at the mouth, blood at the nose were bolted on as as symptoms of the Spanish flu, but they may in fact have been the consequences of misapplication of a drug, misprescription, overprescription, massive overdosing. So, so it may well be the case that while while people were dying of of an outbreak of of a, of a respiratory flu-like illness, many others may have been dying of the aspirin. So, you know, a hundred years on, more than a hundred years on, you, you, we look back at the at that epidemic of illness, and you think, well, there's, a, there's clearly just a lot more questions to ask. But in, in any event, it was on the wane by 1920, and by the end of the outbreak because it, it kind of went as quickly as it arrived. Uh, but it's claimed, it's claimed that as much as a third of the world population had been hit by it, had been infected with it, had had it, either got better or not, but a third of the population had had it. And speculation about death toll, well, I, I, when I was at school, I remember being told that perhaps 20 million people had died of the, of the Spanish flu pandemic. But by now, you quite routinely read 100 million but, but numbers do tend to cycle up like that. I mean, as a, as a non sequitur but relevant, when Stalin was still alive and talking about the sacrifice of the Red Army during World War II to defeat the Nazis, he talked about three to four million dead. Now, by now, if you read about the Red Army defeating the Nazis, you get to 20 million dead. With the passage of time, it's like Chinese whispers... If it was 5 million last year, it's 6 million this year, and, and so on and so on. People get more and more excited about the way they report it. But if, if 100 million people died of the Spanish flu, then that would have been 5% of the 2 billion, nearly 2 billion people who were alive at the time. So about 1.9 billion people alive on Earth at that time. That would be a truly terrifying death toll. But however, let's you know take the heat out of the situation, look back at it in a, in a more sober frame of mind. You know, let's consider the evidence. And as previously mentioned, by 1918, Europe and the wider world, well, they were exhausted. The populations were exhausted by war. People, all sorts of privations, starvation, limit, you know, restricted access to food, shortages of fuel and energy and all of the rest of it. Stress. I mean, let's not overlook the nearly four years of living under the stress of war people with loved ones away, sons away, husbands away, fathers away, and all of the rest of it. So it was debilitating. And this much more recent speculation about the possibility that, believe it or believe it not, the, the misuse of aspirin may have had a lethal component in all of this. And people, rather than dying of Spanish flu, might have been dying of their own attempts to, to cure themselves of their symptoms. Paul Fussell, a great book I've got it on the shelf over there, The Great War in Modern Memory. I, ref I refer to it a lot. And Paul Fussell was a war veteran uh, and an author. And amongst much else, he, he suggested that irony, or at least the appreciation of irony, 
was a consequence of the First World War. And that Europeans in particular became internalised an understanding of, of irony. You know, you, you, people used to say that American people don't get irony. Well, I don't buy that. But it, it may well have been more accurate to say that the First World War particularly grievously affected the populations of Europe. And, and one of the consequences of all of the suffering was an appreciation of irony. When that war broke out in 1914, there hadn't been an all-encompassing global war for 100 years. You'd have to go back to the Napoleonic era, you know, the early part of the 19th century. And so most people, especially the sort of people that ended up fighting in the First World War, like young people, had no experience of, of global war or anything approaching an all-encompassing war. And therefore most people were incapable of imagining what lay ahead. You know, hence all the, you know, the, the excitement of, the, of young men who just wanted to get to France as soon as they could to take part in an adventure that they thought would be exciting. They just didn't know. They had no way of conceiving about the industrialised, mechanised nature of what lay ahead. Paul Fussell said, Irony is the attendant of hope, and the first fuel of hope is innocence. You know, so it was their innocent excitement, their innocent patriotism, their innocent sense of duty and obligation to the to the mother countries. And so off they went. And by extrapolation, you could say that the irony for people who were still alive in the spring of 1918 was that something worse was coming. You know, you'd have, you'd have thought after the psalm, Arras, Passchendaele, all of the all of the charnel houses, all of the butchers' yards, that they had seen it all, that it, that it couldn't get any worse. But the irony that that Europeans had learned to appreciate was that just when you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. And so I mean, we have to pay attention to the traditional telling of the of the story of the of of the Spanish flu pandemic. The First World War probably claimed the fighting. The bombs and the bullets and the machine guns and the barbed wire and all the rest of it probably claimed 20 million men dead. But if the traditional assessment of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920 is right, then what was coming, that pandemic, killed many, many more people than the First World War. It's possible. But as I say, I mean, I suppose um, I feel this way about a lot of what I've written about in the past. And even as recently as my book, you know, the story of world in a hundred moments, things that I trusted and took for granted two, three, four, five years ago, all that's happened since has made me take another look at so many things. And, and I, I look again at what I have or had understood about the First World War. And I look again at what I had internalised about the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920. And I think, at the very least, there's more to learn. There's more to understand. And so if there's, if there's a message from this particular love letter to the world, I think it's that, and maybe there's some irony in there as well, however long you've lived and, and however much you think you understand, the irony is that there may well be a great deal more to learn and understand. It's 
the 4th of June 1924, George Mallory and Andrew Irvin set off from Advanced Base Camp at 21,330 feet. As the cloud clears, two black dots are seen from a distance moving against the snow, suspended in space between Earth and forever. In the tragedy of their loss is the unblemished heart of adventure. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address, easy for these complicated times of ours. The address is neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, excellent stuff, high quality, delivered straight to your door. What could possibly go wrong? My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd that they should be joining us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld and it's fab. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.